Now Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to the mountain of God, to Horeb. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from within a bush. He looked, and the bush was ablaze with fire, but it was not being consumed. So Moses thought, I will turn aside to see this amazing sight. Why does the bush not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from within the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. God said, Do not approach any closer. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. He added, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. I have come down to deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a land that is both good and spacious, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the region of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorite, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now, indeed, the cry of the Israelites has come to me, and I have also seen how severely the Egyptians oppressed them. So now, go. I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, or that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He replied, Surely I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I have sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you and they will serve God on this mountain. Moses said to God, if I go to the Israelites and tell them, The God of your fathers has sent you to me, and they ask me, What is his name? What should I say to them? God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, You must say this to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, You must say this to the Israelites. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial from generation to generation. Let's pray together. Lord, we believe that you are the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob that you hear us today the same as you heard us then. Lord, that you hear uh, the cries of the oppressed today uh, as you heard them then. Lord, that those things uh, are upsetting to you, Lord, and we believe in time that that you will deliver your people, um, that you have delivered your people. Lord, that you have sent your Son to us, uh, that your Son was killed by those who oppressed him, that he he died on the cross. Uh, We believe that he was resurrected 
we believe that he will come again. Lord, come into our presence this morning as we worship, as families, as a body. Just be with us this morning. It's through your son's name we pray. Amen. Feel free to stop the recording now and worship the Lord. I will be reading from Matthew sixteen twenty-one through 28. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Pray with me, please. Holy God, things are a mess. They are a mess. And in moments like these, we run out of words. We run out of silly sayings. We run out of, run out of funny memes. We run out of dumb statements like, when things get back to normal, and I can't wait until. And in these moments, when we're out of words, we're out of cute anecdotes, we lean down and we say, God, help us. Lord, be with us. So, Lord, in these moments, I ask you to bless us. Show us your presence. Show us your face. Be with all of those who are struggling and hurting. And let us never forget that the kingdom of God is never in trouble. And no matter how dark it gets, you are always a light. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Feel free to stop the recording now and worship the Lord. Good morning, church. As a teenager, I distinctly remember this conversation. A family friend had recently returned from a trip to Europe, and as they recounted all the things they had visited, they mentioned taking a tour of a concentration camp. This completely floored me. After all, it was about this time that my stepmother had taken me to see Schindler's List in the movie theater. Why would anyone want to take a tour of a concentration camp? I mean, who has preserved those sites anyway? Why not just completely tear them all down? Who wants to remember all of that? As I've gotten older, though, I have begun to understand. 
We visit the past, even the dark aspects of our past, to remember. Let's not do this again, we say. We visit in hope, to celebrate in some small way that in the end, death does not win. Good outlasts evil. I read a travel blog recently from someone who had visited Auschwitz, perhaps the most infamous of the concentration camps, where Jews were tortured and exterminated. The writer describes what it was like to walk the dreary halls and enter the ominous building. The author describes entering the room which served as the gas chamber. And in the middle of that room, on the floor, there lay one single vase of flowers. And it seemed so out of place. Too little, too late. Yet someone had come here, likely in memory of a lost relative. And they had brought a total and complete contrast to a space of death and evil. They brought flowers, symbols of beauty and hope. And they visited the past in order to find the future. This is what laments do. In lament, we revisit our worst moments in search of God. And this morning, after looking at Psalm 13 and Psalm 22 the past two weeks, we begin two weeks looking at Lamentations. And we won't finish Lamentations today, so don't look for completion in today's message. It's not going to completely resolve. Arguably, the high point of the Old Testament comes in the reign of David, his preparation of building the temple, and then the temple construction under uh, the reign of his son Solomon. And the low point is roughly 400 years later, when the Babylonians burn it all to the ground. And Lamentations visits that worst moment in search of God. Let me give a little more background on what happened before we read several excerpts from Lamentations today, if you want to go ahead and turn there. God had made a covenant with Israel. God would protect them. And in turn, they would serve the Lord and worship Yahweh only. However, as we see throughout the entire Old Testament, they're consistently unable to follow through on that. Even Solomon, who I just mentioned, follows prey to idolatry shortly after building the temple. And his son Rehoboam is a real piece of work, leading to a political coup and quickly a divided kingdom. And you probably remember stories about wicked leaders like Ahab and Jezebel, prophets like Isaiah, Micah, and Amos, warned both the northern and southern kingdom. If you do not follow the Lord, God will judge you by allowing other nations to conquer you. Well, what were their sins? Besides idolatry, the prophets regularly warned them about a lack of justice, primarily seen in unfair court proceedings and refusal to take care of widows, orphans, and immigrants. The prophets speak out against sexual immorality and widespread hypocrisy among the leaders and the elites. Eventually, the northern kingdom falls prey to the Assyrians, and this is around 722-721 BC. However, the southern kingdom, known as Judah, with the prized city of Jerusalem, holds out longer due to some good kings and some revival along the way. However, around the year 600 BC, we see things falling apart. Judah is surrounded by far greater military powers, such as the Egyptians and the Babylonians, who had conquered the Assyrians, which we just mentioned. The southern kingdom makes political agreements for protection, which involved agreeing to paying tributes and taxes. But when they go back on their deal, Babylon comes around 597, 
and they don't destroy the city, but they do take some of the best and the brightest back to Babylon as exiles, such as Daniel and his friend Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They install a new king, Zedekiah, and they warn them. Next time, you won't get off this easy, so to speak. They'll destroy the city. Well, a decade goes by, and Zedekiah tries to strike a deal with the Egyptians. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon will have nothing with that, so he sends his army back to Jerusalem, basically saying, we told you this would happen. And they lay siege to the city for about two years. And imagine what conditions in the city would have been like during a two-year siege. I mean, consider our supply chain during the pandemic and the quarantine, a two-year siege you'd run out of toilet paper really fast. Eventually, the Babylonians penetrate the wall. They burn the city. They burn the temple. Zedekiah runs. They catch him. And before blinding him, they murder his sons, making that the last thing he ever sees. And then they march him off to Babylon, and they keep him as an example for the duration of his life. The Book of Lamentations commemorates these great tragedies. And every year, Jews still read this on the 9th of Av, which was July 29th this year. Most every day, if you were to visit the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, and that's the only remaining portion of, of the second temple, you will hear someone reading Lamentations out loud beside the wall. Traditionally, we attribute Lamentations to the prophet Jeremiah, but well, we don't know for sure. Lamentations is made up of five poems, and we have those as the five chapters. The first four chapters are acrostic poems, where the first letter of each sentence lists the letters of the Hebrew alphabet in order, and we think they did that to make it easier to remember. Many scholars believe the structure of the five poems lends itself to a climax in the middle, kind of like a sandwich, if you would, not the climax at the end, and we'll come back to that primarily next week. Before reading some lines, let me emphasize one more thing. The Israelites interpreted the destruction of Jerusalem as divine judgment. The prophets warned them of this for years. We should be careful, though, about interpreting present-day pain and suffering as judgment. Especially, we should be super careful about interpreting other people's pain and suffering. But in this story, the prophets had made this particular situation and interpretation really clear. God was judging Judah, the southern kingdom, and the city of Jerusalem for their idolatry and immorality and lack of justice over the years. So let's enter into this dark period by reading a few excerpts, and we're going to read several. So this is Lamentations. We'll start chapter 1. Let's read verse 11. Lamentations 1, verse 11. All her people groan as they search for bread. They barter their treasures for food. To keep themselves alive. Look, Lord, and consider, for I am despised. In any type of siege, food and water become rare, and starvation sets in. And so, what we see happening here is people trade their most valuable possessions for a loaf of bread. That family heirloom passed down for generations, suddenly you're willing to part with it rather quickly. And one thing about this tragedy was how it affected all classes of society, rich and poor. All were devastated by the siege and the ensuing uh, capture and devastation. Now let's read chapter 1, verse 16. 
This is why I weep, and my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me, no one to restore my spirit. My children are destitute because the enemy has prevailed. That's one of the really sad things about this. The tragedy of this affected children, not just adults. I mean, imagine them being cooped up in the city for two years with limited rations. Crying was a daily reality for all ages and all classes. Uh, Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, Where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. Kids start to just pass out and faint because they don't have what they need, because they're hungry and they're thirsty, and they begin to die of starvation. And most likely, similar to our current situation, this affected the most vulnerable first. Now let's read chapter 2, 20 and 21. Look, Lord, and consider, whom have you ever treated like this? Should women eat their offspring, the children they have cared for? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? Young and old lie together in the dust of the streets. My young men and young women have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered them without pity. This verse gives us our first description of what haunts me probably the most. It appears that some people resorted to cannibalism during the two-year siege. Reflect on how hard things would have to become for that to even cross your mind. On top of that, the religious leaders were murdered in the temple, and this brought difficulty for two reasons. First, they looked up to those leaders and they trusted them, even if there was widespread hypocrisy. But second, this revealed that the temple was not a place of protection. If God wouldn't protect them in the temple, nowhere was safe. And last, we see that the Babylonians killed men, women, and children. They didn't just fight the soldiers. Innocent civilians were murdered when this happened. Now let's read chapter 4 and verse 5. Chapter 4 and verse 5. Those who once ate delicacies are destitute in the streets. Those brought up in royal purple now lie on ash heaps. And I wanted us to read this to, to demonstrate once again, this affected everyone, including the wealthy. The wealthy did not escape this Everyone, ultimately, was devastated by this tragedy. Now let's read chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. Chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of the hunger, who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children, They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. I told you it haunted me. In this passage, we have a more direct reference to cannibalism. And it's devastating to think about it. Chapter 5, 11 through 15. Chapter 5, 11 through 15. Women have been violated in Zion and the virgins in the towns of Judah. 
Princes have been hung up by their hands, elders are shown no respect. Young men toil at the millstones, boys stagger under loads of wood. The elders are gone from the city gate, the young men have stopped their music. Joy is gone from our hearts, our dancing has turned to mourning. And this further describes the atrocities committed by the Babylonians. Innocent people suffered in vicious, horrific ways. And those not murdered were made into slaves. And this last verse sums it up. No more joy, no more dancing, only mourning, crying, and weeping. And then the last verses we'll read today. Chapter 5, 21 and 22. Chapter 5, 21 and 22. Restore to us yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old. Unless you've utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. Of course, Lamentations was written by the survivors, those enslaved and taken into captivity. They hope and pray they'll return, but maybe God's rejection is final. Maybe they'll be in Babylon forever. Maybe the Jewish people will fade into history and be no more. Maybe this is the end. And they wrote these laments in exile, even if perhaps the composition began during the siege. And they kept reciting them to each other. They kept reading them. They kept revisiting their worst moment, and they kept going back to the worst thing that had ever happened so they would remember. They kept visiting the dark memories in hopes that God would change it. They kept looking for a sign of light in the darkness, like a small vase of flowers in a gas chamber. And here's an essential part of lament that we need to know. We need to face our darkest moments. We don't need to stay focused on them forever. We don't need to wallow in them and let them define us. But we do need to name our pain. We need to visit the concentration camp. Healing will only come on the other side of naming the pain, naming the hurt, naming the darkness. Lamentations contain some of the most difficult things I can possibly imagine. What's amazing to me is that for 2,500 years, people of faith have clung to these words and recited them regularly. Why? They believe saying it out loud is an act of faith, not a lack of faith. They believe that you find your future by naming your past. Family, what would it look like to name your pain? To name it, to be honest about it, authentic, transparent, and vulnerable. Maybe you buried someone long before their time, and you think of them most every day. Maybe you did something that's just eating you up. It's a secret, but you're afraid to tell anyone. Maybe you were abused, harassed, or violated. Maybe your spouse cheated on you. Maybe you cheated on your spouse. Maybe a close friend betrayed your confidence. Maybe you work for people far less qualified who don't work as hard as you do. You can never get ahead. Maybe you had a miscarriage and no one cared. Maybe an authority figure mistreated you. A coach, a teacher, a boss. Maybe you experienced racism and every time we witness another tragedy such as the recent shooting of Jacob Blake, 
it just rips that wound wide open again. Maybe someone you loved left you. Maybe you felt scared and no one understood. Maybe you got really sick or really hurt and thought you were going to die. Maybe you went through deep pain and the silence of God felt overwhelming. Well, let me share mine. Let me name mine. I'm hesitant to share it because I've talked about it before. And I never want to act like my pain is unique. You know, I don't want to overshadow anyone else's pain. I mean, we all have pain. But this Sunday, August 30th, happens to be the 34th anniversary of the worst day of my life when my first mother died in a car accident. And a few years back, I met with a counselor for a few months, and we were processing some emotional pain I was experiencing in the present, But and you might have had this experience. It quickly went back to the past. And eventually, it all traced back to one moment on the worst day ever. And this was as bad as it's ever gotten for me. I was on a hospital stretcher in the hallway of the emergency room, and I was okay. I didn't have bad injuries. But I was lying on that stretcher, and people were running all around me, and I didn't think anybody was listening to me. I I really couldn't get anyone's attention, and I was all alone, and I've never felt more abandoned in my entire life. And when things get really bad in my life, when I'm really overwhelmed, my mind and my heart, they go back to that hallway. And I said that to my counselor, and he responded, If you could go back to that hallway now, what would you say? If you could talk to that eight-year-old boy, what would you say? And I'll tell you what I said next week. But now, I want you to think about it. If you could go back to your worst moment now, what would you tell your past self? If you could revisit your past self in your darkest hour, What would you say? And this is what lament is. You go back to your worst moment. You name your pain. You admit you feel disoriented. Everything is wobbly. You don't know which end is up. And you admit it. You say it. You get it all out. And then you listen. You wait for God to show up. Here's the hard thing about laments, though. They don't easily resolve. They don't quickly resolve. I mean, this sermon doesn't resolve today. But there is a healing on the other side. I promise. Jesus promises. There is a healing on the other side. But to get there, you have to be willing to name your pain. You have to be honest and vulnerable. You have to be willing to put a vase of flowers on the floor of an old gas chamber, even if that seems ridiculous, even if it seems futile, even if it seems foolish, for that is lament. Please take a moment to uh, to worship God and to prepare your hearts and minds uh, for communion. Good morning. Well, it's great to virtually see you. Uh, I uh, 
I've been missing you, and uh, it's fun to see you. Uh, I wanted to um, talk a little bit about a uh, a song. Uh, I've always admired songwriters. There's something just magic about a uh, a really good songwriter that can very succinctly tell a story or or uh, bring out a thought. Uh, the specific song I wanted to talk about is "My Hope Is Built on Nothing Less." by Edward Edward Moat. Uh, He was a pastor at the Rehoboth Baptist Church in West Sussex, England, and wrote about a hundred hymns, and this is his best known. He wrote this in 1834, and uh, it is just a wonderful uh, song as we think about Jesus. Uh, I thought I would uh, would uh, read a few lines of this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then be found, or then, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone. Faultless to stand before the throne. And then the chorus, On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the hope that we have in him. And that hope comes because he was willing to sacrifice his life for us. And Father, uh, this morning, as we take this cup and we take this fruit of the vine, Father, we are remembering his body that he shed for us and his blood that he shed for us. We are thankful for Jesus. We are grateful to you. We uh, pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a reading from Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9 
to the end of the chapter in verse 21. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in the showing of honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by, doing, by, for by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you have mercy on us during this time, that you forgive our sins, we know that our hope is in you and we know that we will not be disappointed. We pray for those who are sick right now. We pray um, that those who have reason to uh, rejoice, rejoice with you and we rejoice with them. Uh, Father, we thank you that um, your church is alive and that we have, uh, we continue to have an opportunity to meet even through these strange times. Father, we know that you are with us. We thank you for our blessings, the ones that we clearly see and the ones that we don't have the eyes to see. Father, we pray for our elders uh, as they guide us through these times. We pray for uh, those who are supporting them um, and for the work that is being done in your name. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that uh, he died for us. We praise the resurrection, which is our hope. And we offer this prayer in his name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Almost a month of virtual school is in the books, and our family is ready for a vacation. Don't know about the rest of you. All right, as usual, since COVID-19 has cleared everything on our calendars, there isn't much to announce. But COVID can't clear out our birthdays, although maybe it did our anniversaries because none are on the calendar this week. So we have three birthdays. Beth East celebrates a birthday today, August the 30th. Tomorrow is Nancy Green's turn, and as much as I like to skip over mine, I am turning something on September the 2nd. If you want to know how old I will be, ask my kids. They'd be happy to tell you. 
And all right, that is about it. Short announcements. Remember to keep those on our prayer list in your prayers. And if so inclined, log into the Coffee and Donut Zoom link. Everyone have a great week and God bless. You've been listening to 900 Ackland Avenue, the podcast for the Ackland Avenue Church of Christ. If you'd like more information about our community, our church website is http colon slash slash Thanks again for joining us. God bless.